Hello everybody, I'm Omer and Oats for Breakfast is back from being on break during the past month. We have a great discussion with Adolf Reed Jr. for you to listen to, though I do need to highlight the fact that this discussion was not initially recorded for the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Rather, a couple weeks ago, the Center for Free Expression at Ryerson University in Toronto hosted a conversation between Adolf and myself. The conversation took place in the form of a video live stream titled Anti-Black Racism and Inequality, What is to be Done? And afterwards, I asked the organizers of the event, Jim Turk and Ange Holmes, if it would be okay to publish the audio of the event on the Oats podcast, because I figured the Oats audience would find it interesting. So that's what you're going to be hearing when we cut to the discussion with Adolf. Now, I'm not going to publish the entirety of the live stream discussion here. I've taken the conversation that Adolf and I had, which was about an hour long, and I've edited it down a bit to make it a bit more streamlined. And I'm not including the Q&A portion of the discussion, where those who were attending the live stream asked Adolf questions. So that means you'll have an incentive to go to the Center for Free Expressions website to watch the video of the live stream that they've uploaded. Uh, I'll include the link to that in the episode description. Adolf Reed Jr., uh, I don't think, needs an introduction, uh, certainly not to the Oats for Breakfast audience, but just in case, he is Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. He has written a number of books, the most popular of which, I think, is Class Notes, Posing as Politics, and Other Thoughts on the American Scene. I chatted with him about racism and inequality. I was thinking that the the place to start maybe would be to say that when we often talk about the relationship between racism and inequality, we allow descriptions to get in the way of explanations or to stand in for explanations. Uh, So any number of statistics, for instance, could be pointed to to describe the fact that racial minorities tend to, to bear a disproportionate amount of harm and suffering in society. So, for instance, uh, Michelle Alexander's famous uh, 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, highlights the issue of uh, the disproportionate incarceration of black men and women in the United States. Uh, In recent months, we've heard a great deal about the disproportionate killing uh, of black men by American police officers. Uh, One could find similar kinds of data across a plethora of issues, uh, income inequality, health outcomes, and so on. Uh, But Adolf, you make the case that descriptions based on aggregate data often hide as much as they reveal. And not only that, but you also maintain that descriptions are not explanations. Uh, Just because one can describe a situation in terms of racial, racial inequality doesn't mean that the explanation for the inequality has to do with race and racism. Could you tell us why you think that? Um, sure, that's a good question. I think it's a good place to start. Um, let me start start by pointing out what I think is um, the structure of a rhetorical narrative that makes the argument from from disparity 
to racism as a stand-in for an explanation actually work, right? Uh, and um, and I think, for instance, that the the, the uh, Michelle Alexander book is a very good um, I mean, instance of the narrative structure um, because in reading that book, like she repeats the trope throughout that mass incarceration is like the new Jim Crow. It's like the new Jim Crow. It's like the new Jim Crow until all of a sudden it, it isn't. And even she acknowledges that, well, it's not really that, that hot a metaphor or, or an analogy, which, which begs the question, well, well, what's the work that the historical analogy does? And not just in Alexander's work, but, but in many other instances of, uh, of efforts to uh, explain you know, the, the, the causal dynamics um, that undergird contemporary inequalities, one's t- one turns to analogy with the past, right? Um, to say that this, this, this form of inequality, it makes us think of Jim Crow, this form of inequality makes us think of slavery, and uh, emphatic uh, expression of it is the contention that, you know, some particular outrage or some pattern of outrages makes it seem as though nothing has changed since 1860 or, or sooner. Um, and the problem is that, um, rather, the work that that narrative structure does is, uh, is kind of a sleight of hand that enables proffering racism or white supremacy as um, a cause or as a causal explanation. And the way that that works is that you say, see, you know, this this same kind of disparity um, existed 150 years ago. It existed 70 years ago. It exists now. Um, and we know there was a white supremacist order 150 years ago. We know there's a white support, uh, um, um, white supremacist order 70 years ago. So, I mean, therefore, uh, white supremacy or racism has to be the explanation of the inequality in, in, in the present. The problem is that, that that's, that's not a causal account, right? It's an alternative to, to a causal account. Like it doesn't tell us how racism, I mean, supposedly produces mass incarceration or produces whatever the particular um, you know, disparity is, is at the moment. And to that extent, it doesn't really help us. If, if that kind of contention by analogy to the past, I wouldn't even call it like historical analogy, but analogy with the past doesn't help us um, or doesn't shed light on how, in particular, inequalities in the, prode- in the present are produced, then it doesn't help us uh, address how to confront them, how, how to overcome them, how to challenge them. Uh, and and, and, uh, and I mean, therefore, I think it's uh, misplaced at best. All right, so how... Um this is a big question, but um, that I think we'll be talking about the entire time here. But what what would you say is, or how would you explain uh, the inequalities that persist in the present, if not by going back to slavery or to Jim Crow or whatever else? Right. Well, I mean, it depends on on the on the character of inequality. But I, you know, I would look. I tend to look first toward uh, the political economy. Right. Uh, so I mean, take for instance. Uh, I mean, let's. Let's shift from mass incarceration to patterns of police killing, right? 
um, which like seems to be the sweet spot for people who want to argue that that the existence of of these disparities prove uh, you know, the causal force of an abstraction called called white supremacy. Um, because it's true that in the United States, police kill black people at roughly twice their uh, uh, rate rate in the overall population. Um, so if you stop with with finding the disparity, then you say, okay, well, it's outrageous that black people are killed at more than twice their instance in the population. Uh, I mean, therefore, uh, racism has 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 to be the response. Well, but in most years, um, at least an equal number of whites as blacks are killed, and whites uh, uh, most often make up um, a greater number of the total of people who are killed by police than than blacks. So a question then is, well, if police um, terrorism uh, is directed only toward blacks and other peoples of color, then how, how are we to understand all these white people who get killed, killed by police? Because even though the, the total percentages of, uh, of uh, whites who are killed or the total percentages of whites among uh, you know, the, the N of people who are killed by the police tends to be um, you know, considerably lower than their representation in the overall population. They are still a, a majority of the people who are killed, killed by the police. Well, and uh, Michelle Alexander faces the same problem w- with respect to mass incarceration, right? The fact that, that there are more whites in jail overall than, than blacks. And the only response that you're left with in the disparitarian framework is that they're collateral damage, which on its face doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you look at police patterns of of police killing by a different, uh, or according to a different metric than just race, and look look at the zip codes, right? uh, Features of the zip codes of people who are killed killed by police. what, What you'll see is that People who are killed by police are disproportionately people from very poor I mean, zip codes. Now, as my friend and colleague Walter Ben Michaels and I um, argued about a month or so ago in, in, in a piece called Trouble with Disparity, is that there's nothing especially shocking about saying that police disproportionately kill, kill poor people because in a capitalist society, one of the functions of police is to protect property and property people from, from, from poor people, and especially under neoliberalism, to suppress the poor. So I think, and when we begin to unpack the other, I mean, disparities, uh, COVID-19 is a great example, right? I mean, at the, from, from the very beginning in, in the U.S., I mean, discourse about COVID-19 uh, went directly, and this was across, you know, the ideological spectrum um, that Blacks were, were, were especially vulnerable. And so, so you ask, well, so what makes blacks especially vulnerable to COVID-19? And, and again, I've written about this because uh, that problem or that narrative raises the real danger of a return of, of race, race medicine, right? Uh, because it smuggles in a premise that there's something either biologically or culturally. And for most people, most of the time, there's really no substantive difference between biology and culture, right? Uh, they signify each other. Um, and that can lead just, just as easily 
to to an argument that that blacks are somehow responsible through their habits or their inferior physiognomy or or physiology rather uh, to being uh, you know, victimized by the worst effects of COVID nineteen, which I I'm as convinced as one can be without firm um, evidence, which I guess should only be so much, but that one of the reasons that that, that the Trumpsters were so comfortable in picking up on targeting COVID, uh, COVID-19 protections as uh, being uh, un-American was the sense that, well, like only the weak and the vulnerable get it, and we aren't part of the weak and the vulnerable, so to hell with it, right? Uh, um, I know I kind of rambled through through, through through that, but let me punctuate it with with, with the one observation that, my, that I hope you know, will bring the rambling home, which is that from the mid '30s through the '60s, really, um, black activists and racial advocates and civic elites rarely, if ever, campaigned against an abstraction called racism. They campaigned for uh, specific policies and practices and against uh, specific policies and and practices. But almost never did we see attempts to mobilize against an abstraction called racism or white supremacy. Uh, And I think that there are reasons for that that we can maybe unpack or unfold as as the discussion goes on. But I think it points to a problem of mobilization, right? That if our struggle is supposed to be fundamentally a struggle against an abstraction called, called white supremacy or its, or, or its son, the Holy Ghost, right? Uh, you know, the abstraction called racism. How do we know when, when we've identified the enemy? I mean, how do we know to lock in on it? And how can we know when we've possibly won? And to that extent, what, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I've compared um, you know, a political struggle against racism to, uh, uh, to being kind of an equivalent of anti-terrorism campaigns, right? Because you, but by definition, you can't win those because it's an idea, right? It, it's an abstraction. Um, let me stop there because I feel like I'm kind of, running away from the question anyway on the the issue of dis, uh, a disproportionate police killings you know one of the w- things i've thought about this is that a way to solve this problem would be for the police to kill more white people right right and that's actually a question that we put in our um, piece right that, well okay so right because you can level up you can level down yeah right uh so if if that's the the main concern, then that can certainly be solved in that way. Um, well, when it comes to this point too, though. Well, I'm sorry, but 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 I think this may help. Like uh, my friend and colleague Preston Smith, who who's also a political scientist, has made what I think is a pretty powerful argument over close to a couple of decades now about the need to recognize two distinct nodes of or norms of justice that have coexisted within Black American politics and the political thought and activity since the mid-1930s. One he uh, describes as a norm of racial democracy, which is, you know, quite, quite simply radical um, equality of opportunity. And the norm there is that, that black people should 
should be roughly or should be re represented roughly in their proportion in, in the overall population in every notch in the distribution of good things and bad things within the society. So, so, so like 3% or 13 or 12% of the billionaires, 12% of the unemployed and 12% of everything in, in between. Uh, and there were actually people who have made this, this um, argument quite explicitly in the past. And, and I think the only reason we don't see people making it now is that they feel they don't have to because it's internalized, right? At the core of, uh, uh, of an anti-racist understanding. Um, you know, the other norm that, uh, that Smith points to is the norm that's familiar to, to a lot of us, uh, you know, the social democratic norm, which is primarily focused on closing the gap between the top, top and the bottom across the society, right? Uh, uh, you know, without regard to um, ascriptive categories, right? And one, one nice way, I think, or a simple way to think of the distinctions uh, in between those, those two norms is that the former, right, the norm of racial democracy is focused exclusively on inequalities produced within capitalism, whereas the norm of social democracy is focused on, on addressing inequalities produced by capitalism, right? And, from that, and look, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue against, you know, the principle that differences in ascriptive status should not Im impede uh, the individual's mobility, right? So if we're going to have a world in, in which, you know, there are billionaires and paupers, then if we, uh, if we accept such a world as the only possible universe, then, okay, then a world like that in which people are not kept out of the realm of the billionaires because they're black or aren't forced into uh, you know, the realm of paupery, um, you know, because they're they're black, is better than the one in which they are forced or kept out of the top and forced into the bottom. But is that really a gratifying ideal of social justice? And you can add add in right right, right um, you know the experience of the last closing in on on half century now, when inequalities as a period in which inequalities within capitalism are becoming sharper and sharper, greater and greater, right? Um, it feels like a less and less, or, uh, or the racial democratic norm feels, feels like a less and less desirable goal for us, right? Because no matter what, as capitalist society becomes increasingly un, un, unequals, a larger percentages of black people, like that's what you're interested in only, are going to wind up at at the bottom, while uh, there's some black black people at the top. Um, the other thing to note, as you've been pointing out in your recent writings, is that it's not the case. If if it was at one time that black people are kept out of the top echelons of society, uh, in fact, nearly fifteen percent of uh, black families in the U.S. have an income of a hundred thousand dollars or more. That's a few million people. Uh, you know, whereas in you know fifty or sixty years ago, that you couldn't have said that. Um, but let's uh, let's talk about abstractions for a second because you mentioned um, the abstraction of of white supremacy. Uh, and racism, but uh, it might actually be helpful to pull back a little bit 
and briefly touch on uh, the abstraction of race. Is I think in the popular imagination, you know, race is accepted as a kind of primordial feature of human existence. And uh, it just seems to be a kind of natural consequence of the phenotypic characteristics that, that exist among human beings, whether those characteristics have to do with skin color, as in the case of, of white people or, or black people, uh, or whether it has to do with the shape of people's eyes, which is supposed to be a defining feature of the so-called East Asian race. And I think, and, and not only are there, are, do we see these differences uh, as resulting in, you know, in creating the categories of race, um, that's the, the popular imagination, right? Uh, and I think in a way, you know, it, it's not as harmful as the activist imagination, which says that not only are there races, but they have distinct interests. Whereas I, I don't think that popularly people would, even if they imagine that races exist, would necessarily think that. Uh, so what would you say by contract is, contrast is your understanding of race? Well, okay, then that's a great question, I think. Um, and I'll try to be clear and we'll see if that works. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I mean, here's the way that I go at it, right? Um, all class societies of whatever sort depend to varying degrees on narratives of essential difference or the legitimacy of any existing hierarchy depends on a narrative that people are where they belong, right? It doesn't have to be a meritocratic one, which is a relatively novel form of, of ascriptive hierarchy uh, that, that can be uh, reified as test scores maybe. Um, but discourses of naturalized difference that justify um, at the common sense level um, that um, people who are assigned to different population categories, because it's important to, to recall, maybe I should say this from the outset, that um, all of the evidence has, has, has shown that our species, Homo sapiens sapiens, is a pretty narrow little group that's descended from from a pretty small little bottleneck, and that there are no biological bases for projecting or for proclaiming that there are any, uh, I mean, discernible human, different or discernibly different human populations between the level of the species as a whole and the level of the immediate breeding group, right? Like some county in South India, right? But but as we know, that narratives of ascriptive difference, that is, that, that define people by what they supposedly are rather than what they do, um, can be causally significant and can create common sense, uh, you know, understanding whether or not they're ultimately true. People just have to believe that they are. Uh, I mean, one of the classic illustrations of this is in American immigration studies and of uh, labor, Word got out for some reason that Italians were good stonemasons, and then employers uh, began to hire uh, Italians and make them uh, stonemasons. And um, you know, the biggest centers of like steel production in in the U.S. are uh, have been in uh, near Chicago, no, uh, Northwest Indiana, Buffalo, Baltimore, and each one of those cities has a substantial Polish. Population. Why? Because there's an understanding that poles are good, good steel workers. 
Uh, and it's not that there's a Polish gene for smelting or for I mean, steel production. It's that uh, an abstract narrative that constructs populations in an idealist way uh, has been deployed in such a way as to make uh, as to make something that looks like a self self fulfilling prophecy. But that's a digression. Let me get back to the main point. Here. So, if the the work that narratives of that naturalized difference uh, do is to uh, you know, legitimize existing hierarchies by communicating that um, everyone within the society is is where they should be then what we can see like um, race as a subset of that genus of narratives of ascriptive difference so race from that perspective um, emerges it and and race as a particular kind of category which we can talk about to, to and follow up maybe um, but it emerges at a particular historical moment in the context of uh, the phenomena like chattel slavery in in the new world uh, European expansion in, in the new as, as well as the old world um, as narratives that justify um, a level of inequality right in the U.S., a uh, particularly telling uh, instance is that, you know, from the founding or before the founding through more or less around 1830s, the main defense of slavery among governing elites was that it was a necessary evil, right? And these guys like Thomas Jefferson and even Alexander Hamilton and like others would say, well, yeah, I mean, uh, this whole thing about owning people isn't really cool, but, you know, that's how I... That, that, that's what I have to do to get paid, and I have to get paid, right? And that also says something about what the center of gravity of political discourse was during, during that period, because everyone who was a legitimate participant in, in these political debates was a white man who owned large, large property, both real cattle or, or chattel family, children, uh, I mean, livestock and dentured service and whatnot. It's only when, with the coming of universal suffrage, when the governing elites had, had to presume that they were part of a conversation that involved people who were out, outside their own class, that we see um, a shift in defense of slavery from the necessary evil to the positive good. And that's when you get the ideological crap about, how, well, it's good for the slave because, uh, because slaves are suited to slavery by virtue of who they are, and it's good, good for us, and so forth, and so on. From that perspective, right, race A has has a specific history, and it's not that that old a history. And, and I mean, I read um, I read an article a couple of weeks ago about the recurring uh, um, or on the recurring debate about whether Cleopatra was and you had been black. And I mean, the classicist is just quite quite good about this, and and also you know while being um, empathetic, right. Uh, made clear that, well, the problem with, with this argument or question is that it's anachronistic because black didn't exist as a category, race didn't exist as a category, Egypt didn't exist as a category, right? So, and, and it's a natural human frailty, right, to read common sense knowledge back across the, you know, the hands and sands of time, right, as though the categories that we take take for granted now 
all always existed, right? So my argument is that that race is a category of ascriptive hierarchy that emerged not out of necessity, but that um, emerged coincident with or in colloquy maybe with with the emergence and growth of the transatlantic slave slave trade and and slavery as, as an institution in the new world as well as U- european expansion um, I mean beyond its own own borders in the 19th century moreover uh, you know just to toss this little fi- firecracker out there um, the way that we think about race now right the three to five basic food groups or whatever, right? Um, and, and the narratives around phenotyping and whatnot, uh, uh, I mean, themselves didn't really start to harden and take, take shape um, until the second half of the 19th century. So from that perspective, I think it makes sense to think of white supremacy as, yes, of course, an ideology that people like Kipling and others pushed. But as an institutional practice, I prefer to to see it uh, or to see that, that construct fastened a little more tightly onto you know, the social, political, and, uh, and uh, the economic regime that emerged in the U.S. South after the defeat of Re- Reconstruction and the populist in insurgency at, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, because that's when actually for the first time, racial regulation took on the sort of fundamental character that we all understand it to have have had, and a lot of people like to think for whatever reasons that it still has. So is that responsive enough for me? No, I think that's great. And and I, I guess to follow up, um, we we have a sense of why the right likes narratives that have to do with naturalized difference, whether that's gender or race or anything else. Um, but why is this kind of narrative becoming increasingly common on the left? That's an excellent question. And it's one that I've sort of tossed and turned and, and go back and forth to the lip of the abyss of despair two or three times a day in, in, in trying to grapple with. But, but to be honest, I mean, I think that one of the things that's happened is that, um, and again, like I'm focused on the U.S., but race and and race ideology, both as racism and especially as anti-racism as a politics is pretty much a pure American export now, right? I mean, um, but so um, I think it's important to start the meter of history running at the end of World World War II, right? We had in the US in particular, but it's true like all over, uh, I mean, the Western world uh, and elsewhere, um, a moment here where, you know, the question of which, which way forward after, you know, the defeat of fascism was the world going to go. In, in the U.S., um, there was you know, a multiracial left, <coughs> pardon me, um, and, uh, you know, in which uh, most black civic um, elites and actors, even th- those who were considered conservative at, at their time, presumed and said explicitly that um, essential conditions for continued black advancement in, in post-war America were um, expansion of, of social wage policy at the national level and expansion of 
CIO or Congress of Industrial Organization style industrial trade unionism, because there was a general understanding, even among, uh, among conservatives, that racial inequality and, and structural economic inequality were linked and were linked in ways that maybe it might have been helpful to try to pick apart a little bit more, but you know, the past is past. But, but what happens then over the 50s and the 60s and, and in a more accelerated way beyond the 60s, it's like a sort of quiet or tacit uh, a kind of tension in the substantive struggle over what post-war liberalism are going to be like. Uh, the tacit class struggle within that, that struggle uh, was kind of played out over the extent to which federal economic policy was going to be centered on, on pursuing full employment versus the extent to which um, pursuit of currency, uh, current, currency stability was going to drive federal economic policy. That debate was resolved, ironically, partly around the civil rights. Oh, oh sorry. Um, connected to that debate was a struggle over what racial justice was going to mean, right? Um, and through, well, as I said, I mean, through the 40s, you know, a consensus among even centrist uh, black um, political organizations and, and uh, actors was that the social democratic struggle and the struggle for r racial justice were connected. Well, now what happens over the course of the 50s is that the struggle for, for social democracy gets increasingly sidelined. First, as a result of the you know, direct counterattack on the New Deal and those forces that wanted to extend and expand it that came from the capitalist class at the end of World War II. And, you know, this, like, like, like I've always hated American exceptionalism. And one of the dumbest uh, manifestations of it is this notion that there's something you know, that we need to explain about why we don't have social wage protections here that everybody else in the civilized world has. And, and you know, people talk about American cultural exceptionalism and individualism and, and whatever, whatever. I mean, racism, right? Well, when the simplest explanation is that at the end of World War II, you know, I, I mean, at which point uh, um, the extent of, of the social state in the U.S., especially if you include like the semi-public, semi-private aspect of it, was at least on a par with, with all the rest of Western and Central Europe. But the big difference is that the capitalist classes in Europe came out of the war um, weakened by war and discredited by, by, by their association with fascism. The capitalist class in the U.S. came out of the war bigger, stronger than ever, and, uh, and uh, rehabilitated, right, from, from the measures of public scorn that they'd drawn, drawn uh, because of, of, of the Depression. So anyway, this um, kind of in, impels a general attack on the left, References to class and and and, and to political economy get pretty much expunged out of American political discourse, and at the same time, the growth of psychology as an academic discipline and the money that it had been able to get um, you know, created um, a lot of status envy uh, among academics, and 
once the psychologist, uh, you know, to put it kind of a bit of an oversimplification, but not much, once the psychologist get get hold of racial inequality and, and, and injustice, it becomes like an individual phenomenon, a pathology, prejudice. So race, so racial inequality increasingly over the 50s and 60s and, and, and beyond gets tied to psychological abstractions like prejudice and bigotry, and then um, ironically under uh, you know, the sway of black power, uh, an inadequate self-esteem for, for the victims of racism and so forth and so on. And gradually and, and successfully, the idea of racial in, injustice gets separated from the class, dyna uh, class dynamics of American capitalism then to put the cherry on top, right, after the Voting Rights Act in 1965, we see over the next 20, 30 years, the emergence of a black political class that's fully incorporated into the governing structures of the society. And for them, right, race is just as important as a way to deflect the, the possibility that, that non-elite black people could could experience bases for solidarity with com with comparably situated non-elite non-black people and there's an increasing pressure for insisting on a racial frame of reference as the only proper one for a, for discussing any sorts of of apparent inequality that exists among any black people and that's the context in which disparity discourse, right, uh, has become like a club that, that works. So at this point, it's ironic that, um, and I think the question is kind of leading me in this direction too, but that, that there's a sense in which anti-racism as a politics today does for the PO or the black and POC professional and managerial strata, right, does the same sort of work that race does for the right and did for the segregationists and the white supremacists as a deflection away from, from, from the material inequalities that exist even within the black American population. You mean race and racism does for, for the right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So anti-racism yeah. so anti functions in a similar manner to, to what racism functioned. Right, right exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but for the woke left and uh, and 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 uh, the old-fashioned right, yeah. Okay, so um, we should uh, try and wrap up here. I, I and uh, I we still haven't touched on the the subtitle of the talk uh, or the conversation. What is to be done? And uh, okay. uh, I mean, you've uh, you've sort of hinted at it, you know, in, in terms of, of of fighting for a social democratic universalism. Um, and um, yeah, and I guess I would, I would ask, you know, how we hope to revive that kind of a politics, given that things seem to be going uh, in the direction that things are going. And, you know, the U.S. just elected its uh, first female president, uh, who also happens to be black, right? Because Biden well, is going to be dead. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Because yeah. Biden's oh, not oh, sticking oh, around. Oh, yeah, no, you're <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. and exactly. even yeah. if he's around, he's not functioning. Right. So let's just be honest about who's who's right. actually there. Yeah. Um, 
And and yeah, and the liberal elites are gonna, you know, just as they did during uh, the Obama era, they're going to make this, uh, you know, the the this is a sign of, of of progress, and this is what America is. It's about racial progress, and we have to keep working at it, etc. Um, and yeah, and as a way to to make sure that that social democracy, whether in the form of something like a, a Sanders uh, insurgency or something else, doesn't doesn't make a comeback. But how do you uh, see things moving forward? Well. Yeah, well, that's when the real despair comes, Amir. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, and, and yeah, like this is almost at the level of existential crisis because because it's in the first place it's so obvious what the game is, right? I mean, th- thinking back to the twenty twenty uh, you know, Democratic primaries, right? Um, I mean, most of us never thought that Bernie was going to be elected president, or or that the Democratic elites would permit him to get the nomination, right? But what we did think was possible and, and hoped was possible was that as, as Sanders's message got out uh, you know, beyond the chattering classes, right, and that got out you know, to working people, uh, we, we would have organizing opportunities. And I think that was correct, right? I mean, you remember um, that in at least, I think, 20 consecutive primaries, uh, no matter what happened with with uh, Bernie, um, poll data, right? I mean, exit poll data. That's the word I was looking for. Showed that uh, Medicare for all was the big winner in the Democratic primaries. Like people, and, and even in South Carolina, where I worked, where Biden sort of cleaned Bernie's clock uh, in in the voting. Even there, more than a majority of of the Democratic voters said that they favored Medicare for all. And I mean, that was true, true without regard to race, right? And that's the kind of thing that you can work with, right? Because what, what we found in our work, um, you know, in popular communities is the way to put it, I guess, um, around Medicare for all is that once people start talking among themselves about, about the idea of healthcare being available to all as a right without regard to ability to pay, then they naturally start to talk on their own, right? You know, without the uh, goosing of the skilled organizer or the, or an ideologue, uh, they start to talk, talk talk on their own about access to higher education being 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 available as a right, uh, housing, right, et cetera. Um, and COVID was unfortunate, obviously, because it came at the time that it came, uh, and I'm not in any way. Uh, suggesting a conspiracy about this, if, um, um, except at this sense, that the other side it knows how to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves, and it's not that they're so much smarter than we are. Although I think they have the advantage over much of what calls itself a left because they've got a clear vision that they want to maintain and to realize. Where you know our side is all over the damn place, right? Um, but of course, they also have the capacity to move, and the combination of COVID that sort of you know, understandably knocked us all for 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 a loop. But the George Floyd murder and the Breonna Taylor killing murder also provided them an opportunity to change the conversation, right? So on, all of a sudden, the fact that um, at least 14 million, and I know that uh, you know, uh, you know, this number has you know has to be on the low side. People have lost health insurance during the pandemic. Uh, 27 
million people have been unemployed, I believe. I'm not sure. sure uh, well, I'm not sure about those numbers either, but but they're big and they're only going to be be bigger, which is the only well, the most important thing thing for us to know about them. And and of course, you know, blacks and Hispanics are disproportionately among the ranks of those who who are most ad- adversely affected. But but I mean, all of a sudden, even um, you, you know, Uber and Walmart and Amazon and Goldman Sachs, right? The most, you know, I'm trying not to be profane here, but some of the worst corporations in the world with respect to labor rights, et cetera, are like coughing up close to $2 billion in Black Lives Matter money. And, you know, this question is the way the $2 billion is going and, and, and who's getting it and, and, and what's the point? But in this moment, right, you know, with that on the one side and, and the ritualistic um, you know, demands for symbolic um, e- expressions, right, coming from the heart of the Wall Street elite now, right, Schumer, Pelosi, Biden, the rest of them, like kneeling like it's, you know, a black American frat um, step show, uh, you know, with the Kentucloth. Uh, I mean, going through the ritualistic pieties, uh, this, this, I'm afraid, is what we're going to get, right? And that's like a rerun of Obama. And that's all that Biden kept, kept saying right, right throughout the campaign. The two things that he told us were, you know, I'm going to go back to the good old da- days of Obama, and I can work with my opposition, right? So, like, I had joked that what we're going to have is like a government of national salvation right or a national salvation council like like what often gets installed after the military takes takes power someplace right but um short of that uh, i mean my greatest concern is that four years of this kind of waffling and fundamentally arrogant muddling through right like it's arrogant in the sense that they just think they can write off you know like the working population of america that's going to set the stage for um uh, for a more competent version of Trump, right? And I mean, that's that, that's my greatest fear. And I just don't see, like at this point, uh, I'm, I don't see uh, reassuring signs that our side is gonna be able to uh, overcome it, right? Because I think, see, and here's another thing um, that, uh, I mean, everybody in the US is, is just preternaturally given to understand that a black social justice agenda is um, equivalent to tantamount to or part of um, a left agenda of social transformation, right? And I think that that's ultimately because of the point that I made a while ago about the period when, when the racial democratic and the social democratic tendencies in black American politics sort of rode together, were very tightly parallel or converged, although, I mean, even then, in specific instances, and this is something else that's so good about Preston Smith's work, that that uh, you know he examines this, like the class contradictions within black politics bubbled onto the surface, and people thought about stuff right around housing, uh, when issues um, uh, for one thing. And I think that's sociologically speaking, right, uh, because we all have Im- imbibed this understanding with our mother's milk, basically. Uh, it's really hard for people to break 
with that premise, right? With that presumption. And in a way, the older they are, the harder it is, right? Uh, because, you know, I came into the movement in the mid to late 1960s and, you know, came from a left, left family. And, and it was just understood, right, that anti-racist politics, because Laura, like in my cohort, like we were part of the cohort that gave the world third, third worldism, right? So it's all there, right? But, but the dwindling number of people uh, from the generation up prior to me were even more convinced, right? Because the fact was the only people in the society who really stood up for black rights were the left, right? Well, so now what, what we've got is popular cultural and in the category of popular culture, I would include most of, you know, the sort of um, woke, woke historiography, right, of the last, I mean, 15 to 20 years, just kind of flattens out all of, of class politics in, 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 in um, black American history. Well, what you've got is a picture that's, that's the version of the common sense that people my age came, came up with, but with all of the edges beveled off. And it's almost like the Disney-fied version of the understanding that black, black is left, left is, is, is black. And that's how you get into this preposterous, um, these uh, preposterous constructs like, like non-PLCs having to be allies and not Full, full participants in a movement. I mean, my God. Uh, but anyway, so one of the main challenges for us is to stave off where we think, uh, or what I think is most likely to be uh, near the outcome uh, of four or even eight years of Harris-Biden, Biden-Harris rule um, is to try to break the thrall of this notion that like any random black person that comes up to you and demands that you do something is somebody you should listen to. And it's just hard. I mean, I don't know if we can do it. I hope we can, uh, because otherwise, oh, and the final thing on this, right? I just want to say this now, since I'm tossing um, the firecrackers around, that, uh, um, uh, I mean, there's a standard account of how um, Trump was a reaction to Obama that I'm sure everybody knows. But I want to suggest a slightly different account of, of, of how uh, Obama was the gateway drug to, to Trump. And, and it goes like this. Um, Obama ran in 2008 and offered us him, himself, him, himself as embodiment of a new kind of progressivism that wasn't tied to any kind of policy agenda, but was just um, um, bound up with a call to identify with his persona and the narrative of who he was and what he'd overcome and what, uh, and that that was the transcendence that was going to make people's lives better coming out of the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. And we know what he did and what, what he didn't do, right? So then when Trump runs, and, and I've read some pretty good, good stuff on this. In fact, we published a couple of articles uh, um, on, on this issue in nonsite.org, uh, one by Leslie Lopez and one by Christian Perenni that I would urge, urge people to read, that uh, of, uh, from, from on the working class voters, um, in one instance, um, Hispanic working class voters with a trade union history who said basically 
that I believe Trump just like I believed Obama, or that I voted for Obama and, uh, because of what he promised, and now I'm voting for Trump because of what it's, he's, he's, he's promising. And when you get down, down to it, what Obama promised was, was not just his persona, but the racial narrative that his persona what, what, what was embedded in, that was the thing that was going to uh, deliver us. And, and that's what Trump said too, ultimately, right? It's like the racial character of, of the narrative that his persona was, was, was embedded in. And it comes back to this. Uh, I, I mean, obviously it's too, uh, it's uh, much too early to say anything about this with, uh, with respect to 2020, but what we do know is that in 2016, um, you know, between more than six and a half million and, and over nine million people who voted for Trump were people who had voted for Sanders in the primaries in 2016 and had voted for Obama at least once. So there's something more than, you know, uh, American workers are so racist, but what's going on there. And if we persist with that, which of course is the line that the MSNBC types want to run, and want us to run. But if we persist in seeing um, racism versus anti-racism or sexism versus anti-sexism as the principal fault, fault lines in, in American society, uh, you know, we're gonna lose and we're gonna lose not just the presidential election, but, but I mean, democracy. Like I, I joked early on that, um, that after um, a second Trump term, he'd be followed by Bolsonaro, but the but the problem with that is Bolsonaro is the same kind of clown that Trump is, and the danger is that he'd be followed by someone like Sergio Moro or uh, Orban or Modi, right? Or so. All right, I'm done. Sorry. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Remember to subscribe if you haven't done so yet. And also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Support on Patreon is how we manage to keep the podcast functioning. So if you like our content, we hope you'll consider going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast and signing up as a patron. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again in a couple weeks.